Okay, so uh, once more, welcome all to our study of uh, two Thessalonians. Uh, last, uh, uh, our last study was a one-off study of a psalm, but before that we worked our way through uh, uh, all of one Thessalonians, so I thought it would be interesting to carry on uh, into uh, the second Thessalonians as well. But let's open with a prayer first. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together to study your word. We thank you for the blessings that you promised us in your word. Grant us now the blessing of your Holy Spirit that our study might be guided by his wisdom. Strengthen our faith in all your promises in Jesus Christ and lead us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, uh, two Thessalonians, the second Thessalonians, a letter of Paul to the third church in Thessalonica, uh, just to remind you from our study of the first letter to, uh, Thessalonians that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that, uh, uh, the church in Thessalonica, uh, was founded, uh, as a result of Paul's preaching there uh, on his second missionary journey. He was expelled from uh, Thessalonica uh, soon afterwards by a riot. He went to Berea. From there, uh, he was then taken by ship to Athens. And from Athens, he sent Timothy to Thessalonica, who reported back to him uh, of the situation there, which is uh, probably the situation behind First Thessalonians. From there, Paul travelled on to uh, Athens, uh, from to Corinth, and First Thessalonians was written uh, from Corinth. Now, then, uh, in in his first letter, Paul deals with various issues, including uh, matters to do with the uh, second coming of Jesus. And soon afterwards, Paul writes this second letter. And the first letter, you will recall, is very warm uh, in his tone. Uh, Paul is very, uh, very affectionate uh, in his dealings with the Thessalonian Christians. His second letter is less so. It's more stern uh, in its manner and in its style, in its content, because by now, and there's no reason for us to think that this is anything other than quite soon after uh, First Thessalonians. So this is all in the same sort of very uh, same time period. Uh, things have changed in that. Uh, a false, either false teaching or at least a false understanding uh, has crept uh, into the church. So there are people who clearly have uh, either misunderstood or misrepresented uh, teaching concerning the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And the second and third chapters of this letter deal with those misunderstandings. And just to draw your attention to uh, the beginning of chapter 2. Just turn to chapter 2. He's uh, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, which were the things that Paul writes about uh, in his first letter uh, at the end of uh, uh, so the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. He says, not to become easily, uh, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word 
or letters seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So clearly there's this uh, misunderstanding or false teaching that has come to the Thessalonian Christians, which suggests that the day of the Lord, of which Paul writes, has already happened. And obviously the implication of that is twofold. Either that it has already come and some people have missed it, or that it has already come and the life that we now live is post, you know, is, it has come after that. Uh, so, the, which is the error that we found in First in Corinthians, this idea that the resurrection has already happened. That uh, the, uh, either way, Paul has to uh, now counter that error in this letter, and he deals with the coming of the uh, uh, the teaching about the end times and the coming of the end of the world and those things uh, in far more detail uh, here than he did. He spends the whole of the second chapter on that. And then he also, clearly there is, if you look in, in chapter 3, um, he seems to be dealing with people who are who have, are basically ready getting ready for the second coming of Christ, and they've downed tools. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 3, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, uh, but busybodies. So there, he's talking of a people who seemingly have said, okay, Jesus is coming any moment now, so there's no, no point anymore carrying on with work. Uh, we can now just, uh, let's just get ready for his coming. And obviously, they need to eat, so they're eating of somebody else's, uh, you know, somebody else is keeping, keeping them fed and, 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 and so on, rather than them working for their own livelihoods. And so there are these two, at least these two issues that are taking place. One of them is doctrinal, the other one is practical, but the practical issue has, is linked to false doctrine, as is always the case. Uh, false teaching always leads to false practice. And false practices often arise, usually arise out of false teachings. Um, he's dealing with these and he's having to correct them, both in their teaching and in their daily living. And that's the occasion or the reason for writing this second letter to the Thessalonians. And we're not going to do this, um, but what we could do if we wanted to, we could put the two letters side by side and show that Paul in many ways is covering the same ground. He, he is right, he's writing the same message again for a different reason with a different tone as the first letter. So much so that some scholars uh, suggested maybe about a hundred years ago, a uh, hundred odd years ago, said maybe two Thessalonians, they suggested that two Thessalonians is in fact not a genuine letter of Paul. It's like somebody, it's an imitation. Somebody came and kind of rewrote the letter of uh, first Thessalonians. There's no evidence that that's true. Um, and the fact that they're so similar is better explained by the fact that they're written by the same person at the same time about the same topics, rather than coming up with this elaborate theory that is somehow for, uh, forgery. But there is a lot of overlap. He's covering the same ground again. But we can see that uh, Paul, the pastoral need of that situation provokes a different response. Paul is a pastoral has, has pastoral sensitivity and he writes differently about the same things to different situations as he jolly well uh, ought to uh, do. 
So that's the uh, the setting very briefly uh, for this second letter to the Thessalonians. And this shows also that Paul clearly has a constant, is, is keeping in touch with uh, the, um, t- keeping in touch with the church in Thessalonica, so he's aware of what's going on, even though he himself hasn't been there. One final thing to say is that in that beginning of chapter 2, verse 2, he refers to a letter seeming to be from us. So he's clearly there's been correspondence and he is, we don't, we can't know sure, uh, for sure, but uh, one possibility is that there are people have written uh, other letters to the Thessalonians claiming to be from Paul and Paul says, Mm-mm, that wasn't us. Which is why at the end of the, uh, end of this letter, uh, the penultimate is a chapter three, verse 17, the penultimate verse of the whole letter says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So this is definitely, you know, they can, they can see his signature there or his, his kind of final, uh, final thing. Uh, it doesn't, the, the letter itself wasn't, wouldn't have been written by Paul. Most people, uh, who could, uh, would uh, use a scribe to write letters because it was, a, first of all, it was, it was a skill. Um, a lot of people who could read couldn't necessarily write, uh, very well, but also because writing materials were very expensive both the papyrus and the ink and the things. It was an expensive business to write letters, and therefore you wanted somebody who was trained to to make the best use of that material. It was cheaper, sometimes it might be cheaper, especially if, if you could get someone to do it uh, free of charge, as Paul may well have done, to get someone to do it so that they use the space, write beautiful, neat, small handwriting, so that you don't waste any space. Um, and so, but to say, and therefore it was like a, it was a little bit like getting a typed letter these days. Anybody could type letter and came, claim, claim that it's from Elvis Presley or whatever. You have to get the signature, and hence you get the handwritten signature at the bottom saying, this is even, you can't tell from the handwriting from that, but you can tell from my signature that it's me. And Paul often does this at the end of his letters. He gets the, he takes the, the quill in his own hand and he writes a short greeting in his own hand so that people know that it's from him and it's authentic. So that's the, uh, just, that's just to get us, uh, set the scene, uh, for this letter. It is dealing with end time things, and and it's therefore it's it's useful uh, for us also uh, for uh, to study these things. So what I would like to do uh, to begin with, as usual, is first uh, read uh, the uh, the whole chapter, the whole first chapter. Um, we've got um, not very many verses at all. Um, there's the first section to verse four, first four verses, and then we've got the second section. So, Rosemary, do you want to read verses one to four? No. Carol, would you be happy to read for us uh, verses uh, from verse five to the end? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Thank you. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus is revealed um, from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God, and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you both uh, for reading. Um, Mr. Kinner, with any, any thoughts, questions concerning this passage that we've just read, before we go into detail? Well, it always makes me so happy when reading Paul's letters because he seems to always start praising and praising God for the congregation or the congregation that they are, they are in faith and, uh, and how proud he is, how happy he is and all that. I think it's a beautiful way of starting, even if you have to then instruct people with a harsher words. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So every letter except one begins with Thanksgiving. The only one that doesn't is Galatians. Yeah. And the difference between Galatians and every other letter is, regardless of how serious the problems are, here are some serious problems. First Corinthians has even bigger uh, and more serious problems. The So long as they have the gospel and confess the gospel, however erroneous they're in otherwise, Paul always gives thanks to them. Galatians don't, don't get thanks or praise uh, because they have, they, he, he thinks that they are giving up on the gospel itself. But yes. And I think it's a, it's a, um, it's a very useful, uh, reminder to us also because it's easy to become jaded, uh, or to become cynical or become critical of things that are familiar to us, including our own churches. Always to remember to give thanks to God, uh, for, uh, our church, the churches that we know. Uh, and for Christians who confess the gospel, even when we have criticisms of them, to begin with the thanksgiving and then move on from that. Any other initial thoughts? I think it's also quite encouraging for them, to them. Yes, it would be very encouraging for them, especially in the light of what's to come. The, the kind of, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not like First Corinthians where he really has serious criticisms of the Christians there, but nevertheless they're about to be admonished. Mm. But before he gets to the, any admonition, he begins with encouragement. And in fact, both both parts of this first chapter, uh, the initial thanksgiving is obviously an encouragement, but also the the second when he already straight away moves into talking about what's come at the, uh, coming in the end, he doesn't talk about. He begins by the encouragement that the coming of the judgment uh, the, uh, will be or and is for the Thessalonian Christians. 
that's what I was about to say, so I got it right then. Good. Any other initial observations or questions about this? Well, if not, let's go back uh, to the beginning. So we have uh, we have the initial greeting, then we have this uh, uh, opening Thanksgiving, and then verse five onwards, uh, he Paul moves on from that uh, initial Thanksgiving to lay out a hope, a future hope for the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, by a slightly roundabout way. So let's have a look at that. So first of all, the letter is sent by Paul to Silvanus, or who is, is, is the simple Latin form of Silas, uh, who are Paul's companions on the second missionary journey, uh, and Timothy. So they are the authors together, although again, Paul is clearly the uh, chief, uh, uh, chief author, but they, they are a team. And it's addressed to the Church of the Thessalonians. Uh, church uh, is translated as church. That word that is translated as church is not a technical term, exclusive technical term. If you talk about the church today, um, whether you use it to refer it to the people or to the building, it's a very specifically specific term. It's a Christian term for a Christian thing either a Christian congregation or a collection of Christian congregations or a building in which a Christian congregation gathers. The Greek word that translates here as the church is not an exclusively Christian term. It simply means the public gathering. And so you would have an, it's, it, the word is ecclesia. And the ecclesia was originally comes from uh, the world of Greek politics. They so would be the the public meeting, like a, uh, you know, meeting of, of the public body. So, for example, if you had a town hall meeting kind of thing, uh, that would be called an ecclesia. And then it becomes, it's taken up by the Christians as referring to their gatherings, so the public assembly. Uh, if you if you read the Old Testament, especially in there, like uh, during the Exodus, you often have a reference to the congregation of the people of Israel. That's exactly the same thing. It is a gathering, public public gathering of Christians, uh, which is why we have the designation at the end. It's not just the ecclesia of the Thessalonians. It's not just any old gathering of Thessalonians. It's the gathering of or the public assembly of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the policy uh, and not in the city of Thessalonica, not that political gathering, but the gathering the congregation in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, which is a good reminder to us, as especially since we are still, you know, the, the, the recent lockdowns and things are a, a, a very fresh memory still for us, is that the church is by its very nature a public assembly. It's not just a collective noun, you know, like you say, you know, you have a, uh, I don't know, you have a, a, a flock of geese or a murder of crows. You know, it's actually, it, it's not just the word that describes the totality of Christians, for example, but the primary meaning of the church is, in fact, it's the same word as the congregation, and it means the public assembly. It's not just a, a kind of a, a, um, an abstract idea. And the church without a public assembly is not a church. 
and the church coming together as the public assembly is the primary function of the church. We are members of the church and our church membership uh, and therefore us being Christians is primarily uh, and ought primarily to be exercised in gathering together as a public assembly. And it's worth always remembering that um, because we have this sort of we, we, we in our culture, uh, can sometimes be tempted to think of, uh, of our Christianity as being very much a matter of what's inside our, what's inside our heads and between our ears. And we just come together with other people who are like us. But that's not the nature of being a Christian. The nature of a Christian is to be a member of the assembly. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians when we're not assembled together, but that assembly is the primary. Uh, primary means of being a Christian, or primary f- locus or focus of being a Christian. Now that's not point that it's not a point Paul is making; it's a point that I'm making, uh, just from that word. Uh, and then it comes the greeting, a standard apostolic greeting. Uh, virtually all the apostolic letters of the New Testament begin with these words, or words similar to this: "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Um. Grace, God's favour, and peace. And these are all, this is for, it's always from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, these are the things that Jesus came to bring. Grace and peace. And we have them, peace announced at Jesus' birth, peace announced at Jesus' resurrection. And then he goes, into this thanksgiving, and because he's a, he, Paul is a skilled uh, communicator, he ties up the the cause of thanksgiving to the wider theme of the letter. So he already introduces the uh, theme of the letter um, very early on. We ought always to give thanks to you, thanks to God for you, brothers. And remember that brothers, and I, I bet uh, Barbara, your Bible says brothers and sisters. Uh, but brothers is, is just a term that is used for the, the Christian, uh, community. We are brothers of one, one of another, uh, of one another with, because God is our father. As is right. So is this emphatic? We ought always to give thanks to God for you as is right. Um, right. That word right, by the way, is when we have uh, in um, in the liturgy, uh, we have the proper preface. Do you know what the proper preface is? It's the prayer that comes uh, at the beginning of the service of the sacrament. It is truly meet, right, and salutary. Okay, and that word meet. Um, Doesn't mean meet. Well, meet with two E's. Mm. Uh, uh, but it's, it's an, you know, it's, it's obviously an archaic word that no longer gets used in, in ordinary English, which really means it is fitting or appropriate. Mm. And it is right and just. And this, this word here is really means, means that. I mean, in the Roman, uh, Roman liturgy, liturgy, English language liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they will say it is just right. And so, on. Um, but we might say, you know, so this is what that means. It says it is the it is the appropriate thing to do. 
because, why ought we give thanks to God for you? Because your faith is growing abundantly. It literally is, is hyper-growing. It's growing really fast. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Faith and love. Remember this already in First Thessalonians, the, 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 the three spiritual virtues, faith, hope and love, were repeatedly referred to. And this begins with faith and love. Their faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. What he doesn't mention here is hope, because the rest of the letter, if you like, is dealing with the question of hope, the future hope. Therefore, this being the case, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So it's not just that they thank God, but they, they also then mention it to other churches. And this idea, the word boast doesn't mean bragging in the kind of negative sense that we sometimes use the term, but it just simply means that we, we, um, we, we, uh, speak of it as a matter of, of pride. We are, we, we are very, very pleased about it so much so that we can't stop telling other people about it. But they're probably people that don't know Jesus. No, no, they are in the churches. Right. So they, they boast about it in the churches. So they go to other churches. Have you heard about the church in Thessalonica? It's amazing. Their faith is growing. They love one another. That's the, that's the idea. In, in the same way that we might sometimes, you know, we, we, we hopefully will, uh, uh, you know, we'll consider how other churches, uh, that we know and might, might tell one another about the things that we hear about good things because it's a way, it's a form of praising God. What God is doing amongst them. Can I just say something that's not, that the chap and his wife, who keep meeting me every time I'm going yes. to town, but they say you don't come and see them. That's fine. We can, we can talk about this separately because it's okay. not to do with two Thessalonians. No, no, but it's, it's what we're talking about here, isn't it? So well, you see, except that the, it's not really because what, what Paul is talking about, he's telling the Thessalonians that when I go to other churches, I tell them about you. Okay. That's what he's, that's the point he's making here. Um, and what does he boast about? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And this is where it becomes a matter of encouragement, you see. They are, they are suffering persecution and afflictions. They are being mistreated by others in Thessalonica. We know something about it because we certainly know that the, the Jewish synagogue, that aspect, that sort of proportion of the Jewish synagogue that did not, uh, come to have faith, uh, and, and rejected the gospel were hostile to the gospel. Mm-hmm. So those Jewish Christians, Jews who did believe in Jesus and were part of the Christian community there, suffered persecution and affliction from their fellow Jews. But we also know that there was hostility towards them from the civil authorities, which is why Paul had to leave. Mm. And so they would have found themselves isolated. One of the things that is is, is very important for us to understand about culture, at the, the culture of the time was that it was exactly op- exact opposite of ours, culture where 
um, our culture has prizes novelty. If you want to sell something, you say it's new or it's the latest or whatever, and, and everybody thinks that's a really good thing, you know, latest latest iPhone or the new model of this or brand new whatever, and 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 that is something that is valued. I mean, uh, I mean, have you have you got yourself a new phone recently? And they're saying the reason in the last few years, and the answer probably is yes, because it's better than the old one, isn't it? And we do this with not just with um, technology that improves, but actually with all kinds of other things. So uh, in moral, you know, in moral issues, you often say, well, this is the, you know, this is the 21st century. We're not, i.e., we've moved on from that. They, you know, we are, we are better than that because it's newer. In Greco-Roman culture, the exact opposite was true. Anything that was considered to be new was treated with great suspicion. So much so that when people did come up with all kinds of innovations, which they did all the time, they went to great lengths to say, this is how it's always been, even though they, it was only invented yesterday. So, for example, this was the Roman Empire. Well, until two generations before, literally, uh, just a few generations before, Julius Caesar had been assassinated because he was thought to have become too much of a, a an autocrat because he, he kind of behaved as, as if he was king. And we Romans don't have kings. We are a republic. And now, less than a 100 years later, they're an empire. And it seemed to be like this is the right thing to do. But the, the they passed it. But, you know, the, the people who brought about this change passed it off as if it was some kind of, you know, this is how it's always been kind of thing. Now, the... The early Christians had a real problem because it seemed evident that the faith that they followed was a brand new thing. Jesus had only recently died and nobody had ever, ever heard, heard of this faith before. And so if they were peddling this new thing, it was clearly really, really dubious and it was there to upset the existing order. And it was the novelty, the alleged novelty of Christianity that was the, often the cause why it was rejected. Which is one reason, other than theology, that the apostles go to such length to demonstrate that Jesus wasn't a novelty, but actually this is a fulfillment of the scriptures from the beginning, Moses and the prophets. But therefore, people who didn't really care about which bit of Judaism was right and which was wrong would nevertheless be suspicious of Christians because if the rest of the Jewish community said they're not one of us, they, they, this is some new thing, we never heard of this, they would be come under suspicion just for being novel. Dare I say that we could do with a little bit more of this attitude ourselves uh, in the church of being suspicious of new things and trying to hang on to the old things. I don't mean in terms of habits and customs, but in terms of the faith. If there's something, I mean, I've sometimes said this uh, in, in conversations with other, other pastors, that if you suddenly come up with, if you finally understood what some bit of the Bible means, and your understanding of it is something nobody has ever thought of before, you can immediately throw that bit away because it's clearly wrong. 
if you're the first person really to understand it, then you've definitely misunderstood it. Because the, the faith that we have is the ancient faith. It's the one that was established in the scriptures. And we, if, if you come up with a new teaching, don't. God has revealed already his will to us in the word. But nevertheless, this is, this is why the Thessalonian Christians would have, were uh, one reason why they would have been in trouble with their, not just, uh, with, uh, Jews in Thessalonica, but also with the rest of the community because of this, of this, uh, perception of their, their, their community as being, uh, followers of something that is a novelty and a new thing. And therefore, by its very nature, something that upsets the existing order. I mean, most pagan Romans and Greeks despised Judaism for what it believed and practiced, but tolerated it because it was undoubtedly and demonstrably very, very, very old. The Jews had always been around, as it were. And so though they didn't like it, they put up with it because it was old. The moment Jews were kicked out of the Jewish community for believing in Jesus, who was a recent figure in history, they lost the protection of the Jewish community because they said, okay, okay, you're not with them anymore, therefore you are an old. And very often in the early days, uh, the persecution of Christians began by the, um, at the instigation of the local Jewish community. We see this already in Acts. Which is why our relations between the Jewish community and the Christian church quite soon became inflamed and remain so today. But in the early days, it's funny, it's, it's strange for us to think because for so many centuries, Jews have been victims of Christian persecution. Uh, but it's, it's, and therefore it kind of, that's how we always assume it, it, that we kind of easily think that that's how it always was. In the early decades, it was the other way around. Christians were victims of Jewish persecution. Mm. And by the way, even today, if you go to Israel, most Christians in Israel are Arabs. Mm. Yeah. And those Arabs who been, have been Christians, they, they can often trace their, their Christian communities back a very, very, very long time. There's a story of, uh, um, of uh, a tank rolling up in, in some way in northern Iraq during the Iraq war. And they stop and they jump out in this village and, and they see there's a church. And, uh, and the, you know, and the American soldiers can say, well, when did you become Christians? And they say, well, somewhere in the, in the, somewhere, somewhere in the second part of the first century. You know, they've always been Christians there. And therefore, in, if you go to Israel today, there are Christians often, they just have a persecution in the sense that, uh, that we might think of in terms of violence, but they are often discriminated against. And so, so that they don't feel that this is a setback being persecuted, and they don't think of it as being some sort of anomaly and a sign of God's disfavor, he says, we thank God for you, that you are, for your endurance and your faith, steadfastness and perseverance and faith, in your persecutions. And so this is, this is to be considered normal. And now he then moves from that smoothly into dealing with the coming day of the Lord. 
Now, the reason why Paul is writing to them is because of their own misunderstandings and, and the false teachings that have, have taken root in that church. But he doesn't go there straight away. First, he talks about it as a ground of hope for them. And that is the subject of the rest of this chapter. Because he said, you you might think, you know, we've been persecuted. You know, are we the baddies? Or have we, you know, have we have we have we hitched our wagon to something that is uh, dangerous or bad? Or maybe, you know, is this doesn't sound like good news. Remember, gospel means good news. What's the good news when we've been persecuted? It doesn't seem like good news, does it? And so Paul has to remind them that it is, in fact, the good news. You think, you know, that you're being persecuted is a sign that this is a bad idea. You're being persecuted, that shows that you're clearly the bad people because everyone's picking on you or whatever. No, that you're being persecuted and your afflictions and your perseverance and faith in them is evidence, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God. that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So these persecutions are in fact a sign of God's righteous judgment. This is, we are now dealing with the theology behind the suffering of Christians for the sake of confessing the name of Jesus. And and what Paul is saying here, and this is important for us to say, that the, the sufferings and afflictions they're enduring are and evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy uh, of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. That word worthy is very it's is is related to that word that we had earlier uh, about it being right to give thanks to God. So it's the same kind of idea of of appropriateness or fittingness. So you might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering, since indeed consider, God considers it just. What is the ju- right, ju- righteous judgment? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So this is an imp- and, 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 and the rest of it, um, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angel. And this is an, uh, an, an important thing for, for every generation of Christians to remember, for people to remember. There's this, there's, there's a, 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 so much evidence, uh, seemingly, that God is doing absolutely nothing about all the evils in the world. So people say, you know, when, like I was, I was listening to a radio program just uh, the other day, about a very famous American uh, political philosopher who uh, was preparing and planning to go and study and train to be a priest. But then he got drafted and he fought in the Second World War, saw horrible things, came out of the war thinking, surely there can't be a God when he lets these sorts of horrible things to happen. And so he lost his faith and he became a political philosopher instead. Very famous one. Um, very influential one. And every, every school child has to, uh, sit in lessons where they discuss the question of the problem of evil. If God is all powerful and God is 
or loving, then surely evil shouldn't exist. So if evil does exist, does that mean that God isn't loving, or does it mean that God is not all-powerful? Or does it perhaps mean that there is no God? Because if there was a God, surely he wouldn't allow them. And these sorts of questions. Now, I think if you pose that question to St. Paul, he'd just say, well, you're clay, so who, you, how you, you know, what's the pot, what has, what right has the clay to question the potter? And we've got a whole book of Job that has the same message. God simply said, hello, Job, thanks for your message. Did I need your advice before when I created the world? I didn't think so, so I don't think I need your advice now either. In other words, God is wise in a way that we are not, and we, it, we, it's simply not our place to question these things. Um, one, um, so as, as some uh, Christian philosophers of this question have pointed out, when we talk about things like you know, evil, the problem of evil is only a problem if that evil is pointless. Because if 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 bad if, if God uses bad things to bring out good things then it's not pointless. It was actually for a purpose. It's like saying that making, you know, making a, a badly behaved child uh, uncomfortable for a little while might seem like a nasty thing to do, but actually it's in order to discipline that child so that that child learns and becomes a better person. Therefore, it's actually worth it. So if God allows us to suffer things and something good comes out of it, then it's not actually pointless at all and it makes sense. And since we don't know very much, we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We can never be absolutely certain that the suffering that we see is pointless. There might be a point to it, even if we don't know what that point is. And therefore, we can never say with certainty that this problem of evil is insoluble. Nevertheless, it does seem that very often in the history of the world, terrible things happen about which nothing is done. Powerful People get away with all kinds of terrible things and there's no comeuppance and weak people get trampled on and nobody is there to defend them and they never get compensation. So if you take the Holocaust, six million people, Jews were murdered and on top of that, lots of gypsies and homosexuals and Jehovah's Witnesses and political. And in the end, they died. And there's no one to compensate them for it because they died. And say, well, where is the justice of God? And the answer is given here. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God is not unjust. And by the way, the word just and the word righteous are the exact same word in every language except English. So it's just and righteous mean the same thing here. Or are are the same word. God is just, God is righteous, and he will bring about justice eventually. He's not, as Peter writes in his his second letter, he's not slow, rather he's patient. Mm -hmm. And at the last day, when Jesus comes, he will bring about justice, and those who have suffered for his name's sake will be granted relief, and those who afflicted them will be afflicted by God. So when you are being afflicted or persecuted or mocked or ignored or some other milder thing for the sake of the faith, who's the actual victim there? Who's the one who's in trouble? The person who's 
the person who's doing it is actually the one who's worse off. There's a famous story of um, of a lady called Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch uh, Christian lady. Uh, she uh, lived with her as as a spinster lived with her sister and parents. They had a uh, had a shop uh, in 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 Holland, and um, when when Holland was invaded again in the Second World War, and they used because of their Christian faith, they they uh, worked hard to protect uh Jewish people from persecution because they not you know they were rounding up Jews, sending them to gas chambers. And so they they uh gave shelter uh to Jews and helped to um, smuggle them out before they were caught. Eventually they got caught and they were sent to a concentration camp themselves. And there's a um and, and Corrie ten Boom herself survived, but her sister died in there. And uh, she wrote an account of this whole period. And there's one particular incident where she said they were watching as a, a camp guard was beating another prisoner to pulp in front of them. And her sister said, that poor woman. At first she thought that she, the sister was talking about the woman being beaten. But then it turned out that she was actually feeling great pity for the violent guards, so, you know, to be to have such a black soul to be doing that. What a terrible place to be, you know, to have become so estranged from truth and reality, mm-hmm. and to be so ungod, so godless. Mm-hmm. Poor woman, you know, poor this poor woman who had become so violent, and to see ourselves not as victims, we're never victims, because we already share in Christ's victory, but rather those who turn themselves against God's kingdom by persecuting God's people, they are actually the ones who ought to be pitied because they're the ones who will have God to deal with. They will have, they will, God will bring about justice for us and therefore against them. And so it is an encouragement to us that we are not victims when we are rejected or persecuted or mistreated for the sake of Christ, Christ's name, because, as Paul writes to the Romans many years later, if God is for us, who could be against us? God himself will bring about justice. And so when the early Christians prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come soon, they were praying, amongst other things, for relief from affliction, but they were also praying for God's justice to be carried out. And this is the reason why, um, even if there wasn't clear biblical teaching, which we have here, about God punishing the unrighteous, God punishing unbelievers, um, that we would never let, nevertheless, even if the Bible didn't clearly say so, we ought to believe in it. There's this thing called universalism, uh, which has become very common and popular uh, in amongst Christians as well, especially in liberal Christianity, this idea that everybody will be saved eventually. Because if God loves everybody, then he won't want anyone to go to hell, right? Well, I'm sure he doesn't, but that's, that's their fault, if you like. Yes, but there are, there are Christians who are, you know, who argue that eventually everyone will be saved because God, God loves everyone and therefore he wouldn't punish people forever. But I would, you know, I think this, 
even if this, this passage didn't exist, I think we would say, would that make God a just God? So if we stick with the uh, Hitler and his Nazis and, and his Jew victims, I, I, you know, it, it, does it seem right to you that the perpetrator of crimes against people comes before God and God says, oh, well, never mind. I know you did a terrible thing, but, you know, I don't want you to suffer, so come to heaven anyway. Would it, would a righteous, a good, a just God do that? Because, of course, to say that God is love doesn't mean that he is indulgent. God is not indulgent, because indulgence is not ultimate loving. He's true, he's just, he's righteous. And therefore, wickedness and evil must be punished. It would be far. If you don't punish, if you don't oppose wickedness, you are yourself wicked. And God is not wicked. And so when he comes across wickedness, he does not just let it pass. And the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus took upon our wickedness so that it would be punished in him. But if people reject that option, then they have to bear their own wickedness and come before God. That is the point of the gospel. Paul himself had been a persecutor of the church. And yet he talks about those who afflict in Christians will be afflicted by God. Will he himself not be afflicted as well? He, I mean, he was a persecutor of the church. The answer is no. Why not? Why will Paul not be afflicted by God for the afflictions that he afflicted? I mean, he was partially personally responsible for the for the killing of Stephen for example why will why why should Paul not be afflicted as well by God because he changed he repented he repented and he now has faith in Jesus which means that Jesus has taken those afflictions upon himself and so all sin will receive affliction by God but Christ was afflicted for us so that we might not be and so those are the two options God's justice is either meted out on Jesus on our behalf or on us directly those are the two options and those who stand against the church of God stand against God and ultimately at the last day justice will be served but God in his love and his patience is holding out until then. Because that then gives more opportunity for those who are standing against gospel to come to repentance. But look at what that affliction looks like. Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels... In flaming fire. So Jesus' coming isn't a gentle arrival. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. How do you obey the gospel? What does it mean to obey the gospel? To know Jesus is our saviour. Follow the laws of the gospel? No, the gospel doesn't have laws. I was oh. hoping you'd say that, somebody would say that so I can say no to it. Oh. 
Gospel and law are two different things. Law is what you do. Gospel is promise. To obey the gospel is to believe it. Have faith. So when the gospel says Jesus is Lord, you say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe it, you're obeying the gospel. To obey the promise is to believe the promise. If I say to you, come to my house and I will give you a thousand pounds, you're obeying the promise when you turn up for your thousand pounds. It's very different from saying, if I say you obey me because I tell you dig my, you know, dig, you know, dig up my garden for me. That's a, that's simply a command. Whereas if, uh, and, and if that's law, gospel says, come and let me serve you. And if you come to be served, then you're obeying the promise. So obeying the gospel is to believe the gospel. And notice that those who do not know, who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say those who are bad. He's not saying, you know, we are the good people, they are the bad people. And they will be, if they will, uh, God will execute vengeance on them because they're baddies, as opposed to nice, good and virtuous people like us. No, the dividing line is those who know God and obey the gospel, that is to say, believe it, and those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. It's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, but those who know God and believe in the gospel, who have faith in the Lord Jesus, those will be saved and those who do not will not be saved. They. But we're all sinners. Yes, that's my, that is exactly what I meant. That's the point I just made. Yes. It's not through us. Through Jesus. Precisely, which is why you need to obey the gospel, believe the gospel. Yes. Now here comes, if you have, where does it, where does the Bible talk about hell and punishment and so on? Here is the answer. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Or. Sorry, I mean, can you just tell me where we are? Verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. Now that word destruction, um, yeah, uh, or um, it's sometimes uh, translated, used to be translated as perdition, um, but the, the uh, again, it's, this is eternal punishment, punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his mind. So what is the, what, you know, when we talk about hell, what does hell really mean? And the, the, this is the key meaning of it. It's the separation from God. Currently, both those who believe in God and those who do not believe in God, those who uh, have faith in Jesus, those who do not, nevertheless are experience God's love. All the time. We live in his world. And as Jesus says. He lets the rain fall on the sunshine. And the evil and the just. And all good things come from God. So even if you don't know God. Or believe in him. Or you think that there is no God. Even if you oppose him and despise him. You nevertheless. Experience God's presence. And God's goodness. Every day. Now. What does this eternal punishment look like? You are 
eternally removed from the presence of God and the glory of his might. And that's a terrible thing. Mm. Because I used to be told that you were burnt and then you came back and then you were burnt and came back all the time. And where in the Bible does it say that? I don't know. Something my teacher said. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Oh, well. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a made up thing, I'm afraid. Well, that it is. <laughs> it's not. It's no better. I mean, it's often. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the ideas about hell and physical torment and things actually doesn't come from the Bible. Uh, that, that comes from medieval writings describing purgatory, which then got kind of transposed into hell, and a lot of it is made up. You know, uh, uh, pope being pope with hot uh, hot. Uh, her pokers and, and, and that sort of thing. Mm. That's all made up stuff. Or the idea that the devil, you know, Satan and his angels, the demons, torment us in hell. Not true. Hell was created for them as a place of punishment for Satan and his angels. Not, uh, it's not their home. Was that to frighten people into it was believing? A, it was to frighten people into believing purgatory and then doing as they're told uh, to get out of purgatory. It's all kind of made, of, made of stuff. So, so forget all those pictures and things. Forget almost everything you've been told about Absolutely. hell. Okay. The point is that you are separated from God's goodness. And that's not a better fate than being burnt. Okay. It's, it's a terrible fate because you are, you, you are forever shut out from the goodness of God. And it is to be avoided at all costs. It's worth dying for to make sure that you do not share that fate. This is why there are so many warnings in the scriptures about forsaking the faith. Because if you forsake the faith, you know, if Jesus said, whoever denies you, me before men, I will deny before my Father is in heaven. And therefore we must always keep in mind the consequence of losing our salvation. Because when Jesus comes, he says, verse 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. In his holy ones. That's what it looks like. You know, Jesus comes and he's glorified in his saints. That is, in us, in his angels and in, in those who believe in him. The glory of Jesus is what he has made of us. As it were. But we're still doing things wrongly. So that's why we... That's, that, but that is the whole point, Barbara. Yes. The whole point is that we are sin... That he comes, what he makes of sinful people. And look at what he's made of us. Yes. That's the glory. It's a bit like saying, you know, we could say that the, the glory of a, of a skillful carpenter is in, uh, in a skillful carpenter is, is glorified in the, uh, ornaments that he carves. And the whole glory of it is that at the beginning you have a branch of a tree, a block of wood that has nothing in it. And next thing you've got, you've got a beautiful bird. And it's the very fact that the contrast between what they began with and what they ended with, or like, you know, famous, famous sculptures by uh, Michelangelo. And you start with a, with a, with a block of marble, mm. you know, and, and, you know, he famously, he was asked about how he does what he does and said, well, I just remove all the bits that don't belong. You know, there's this uh, David or whatever is, is already in this block of marble, but it's the very contrast between what you start with, which is a block of stone that doesn't look like art. It's just cut out of a rock. And by the time the 
craftsman is finished with it, you've got a beautiful sculpture. There's a, a what's the famous? I can't remember who, who's by. There's a very famous 19th century marble sculpture. Michelangelo. No, no, uh, 19th century, uh, oh. and and it's a veiled woman. And it's so skillfully made that you look at it and it really looks like you, you can see the thin, uh, the, the thin veil that this woman is wearing and, and all the details, everything. Uh, or uh, uh, Michelangelo's David. Um, he's got a, he's, he's, I, I was told, I, I, I don't know any of these things, but I, I'm, it's been pointed out to me that there is, for example, that there's a, a particular tendon in the arm that is only visible when you hold your finger in a particular, if you can lift your forefinger in a particular way, and when you do that, you can see this little bit of a tendon somewhere up in your arm or something like that. And in that particular sculpture, that's what you've got. You've got his finger in that position, and you can see that bit of tendon in. Mm-hmm. And what you started off with was a bit of rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the glory is, is in the contrast between what you start with and what you end with. And he's exactly, so you say, Barbara, we all sin. Yes. Yeah. And the glory of Jesus is that when he comes on the last day, we are his saints and we will be perfected and we will be sinless. And that's the glory of what he has made of us, not because we are wonderful, because he has done my wonderful things. Yeah, and has done, and, and, but he, he, and having died for us, what he then makes of us. Because you will rise on the last day, Barbara, sinless, perfect, entirely holy, entirely righteous, because of what Jesus has done. And so the glory of Jesus will be de- demonstrated in what you're now like. That's the wonderful thing. That's the, that's the kind of goal of the gospel. And so we are, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. <coughs> and it says to be marveled at among all who have believed. So this is this idea of being, this being marveled at. Uh, it's the same same word that is sometimes translated as, as you know. It's the word that people did when Jesus performed his miracles. People marvelled or were amazed. It's a kind of wow. It, it's the sort of word for which we, uh, or the thing for which the word wow was invented. To be marvelled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So. Paul preached to them, they believed, and this is the outcome. Now, it's a long wait. You're playing a long game, but that's what it eventually comes to. Paul is saying, we came to you, we, we rocked up at Thessalonica. We preached this testimony to you, we testified, we told you about Jesus. And on the last day, on that day, that's what will the end result of it all will be. In between affliction, yes. But it will all be sorted out. Now, it's very likely that at this point, Paul is thinking that this might well, this will all happen within the lifetime of many of them. Paul himself didn't necessarily realize just how long this game is. That's, you know, that uh, we will still be talking about this 2000 years later, but nevertheless, this is what is, and, and it's, you can't see it in the English translation, but the words on that day, are in fact the last words of that sentence. So verse 9 would say, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified in saints, to be marveled among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
on that day. So wait for the day when that um, when that day comes. God's justice and righteousness will be demonstrated and will be put into effect. And therefore it is worth waiting for, it is worth suffering for. And so verse 11, to this end, or with this in mind, for that reason, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. There's that word again. It's the thing that in verse 3 was translated as right. We all talk, give thanks to God for you brothers as is right, fitting, meet. Now he says, the same word, that you may, God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good. And every work of faith by his power. So we need to be worthy of our calling. Our calling is what? What is our calling? I believe to be a Christian. Yeah, to be a, to be a child of God. Um, but um, well, the, the calling is, is through faith, but the calling is to be children of God, to be members of God's kingdom, to be... God's people as opposed to any other kinds of people. It's like if you're called up, you're called up to serve in a particular capacity in a particular organization with a particular uniform and you do what that organization does. If you're called up in the Navy, then you join the Navy and then you do what the Navy tells you to do for ends that serve the Navy. And we've been called up by God into his kingdom and therefore, we are now members of that kingdom to serve in that kingdom, to work towards the goals of that kingdom. But God has called us and, and now says, and he doesn't say that he doesn't say we always pray for you that you would be worthy of your calling. But God may make you worthy of your of his calling. So God makes you and it's his calling. It's, it's all everything begins and ends with God, as Paul writes to the Romans. From him, through him, and to him are all things, including our Christian lives. And that God may fulfill every resolve or every purpose for good and every work of faith by his power. So our whole lives are God's work in us, for us, through us. Even our works, our works of our faith are ultimately God working in us. And through us. So that the name of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Not that you may be glorified. Not that you might be, but no, the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Do you see that relationship? So when, when God does his work in you, then the name of Jesus is glorified in you. And because his name is glorified in you, then you are glorified. You are glorified not in yourself. But you're glorified in him, as we saw. He's glorified in his saints. And so everything always comes back to Jesus. But we are beneficiaries of it. When, when we believe in Jesus, Jesus is glorified and we benefit. When we, through faith, work, live lives that are worthy of our calling, carry out the will of God in obeying, however imperfectly, obey his will, 
serve uh, serve God's kingdom, serve our neighbours. Jesus is glorified and we benefit from that because we are now glorified in him. Because we are members of his body, so whatever glorifies Jesus, ultimately we share in that glory because Jesus shares his glory with us. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, this could be equally well translated, all the, um, all the, all the translations I've seen translated as, as grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ i.e. God the Father and Jesus. But grammatically, you could also translate the same in this same last bit, according to the grace of our God and Lord, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to make a judgment which way you read it, because they both are true. It's more likely, I think, in context to be the way it's translated, but you could translate it as God, our God and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that uh, is the first chapter. And it's dealing with a heavy subject in a serious situation, but it is an encouragement that all things work together for good for those who love God, as again Paul will write uh, much later on. So that when the Christians are afflicted or when the terrifying day of the Lord comes, of which this language of fire, which is taken from the Old Testament, Prophet Zephaniah, when he comes, or in, in Malachi as well, that all evildoers will be stubble. The day of the Lord will come, the evildoers will, will be stubble, i.e. stubble in the field, which is burnt. But... For us, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And so the ter- terror of the coming of the Lord is no terror to Christians. There has sometimes been, especially in the 20th century, there's a lot of uh, uh, Christian teaching um, in certain circles, if you like, uh, which uh, portrays the end of the world in sort of terrifying and frightening terms so that you know, you think about the end of the world and it makes you worried and frightened. Consistently, beginning with Jesus himself, Jesus depicts the end of the world in terms of say that they are terrifying for unbelievers. But for us, they're a sign of future hope. So Jesus says, for example, when he talks about the, you know, the, the uh, people fainting with fear and foreboding and so on. So when this happens, he says, he doesn't say hide or brace yourselves. No, straighten up. And look up, your redemption is near. It's like, um, you know, if, it's like, you know, if you, if you are a, a prisoner of war somewhere and all of a sudden the camp where you are comes under, under fire, under attack and bullets are flying and grenades are blowing up. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's bad news for those who are in the, who are holding the camp, but it's really good news for you because they're coming for you. Is your, you know, your lot are coming and attacking and the more, the more it blows, the place blows up, the nearer you are to being released. And so also we say that when, when the end of the world comes, it will be terrified for those who, ha- who do not believe in God or who do not obey the gospel because they find themselves, they find 
I'd finally too late that they've been standing, um, uh, taking a position against God. And taking a stand against God is considerably less, uh, less comfortable than trying to stand up against a tsunami. Or trying to hold things together in an earthquake. Because if God comes, when he comes with vengeance, it will be a terrible day. But for us, it will be a day of redemption. That's the, that's the stall that Paul sets out. And having done that, he then moves in chapter 2 to correct, to talk about it in more detail, to correct uh, misunderstandings that have already managed to crop up in the short time since he left this other night. Any final questions or thoughts? My my question to you is that uh, does that come to you come across to you as an encouragement or not? Because if it doesn't, then I have failed in my task. It no, should do. I should think that was a great encouragement. It's there in black and white. It's intended as an encouragement. An encouragement for what? Encouragement that whatever happens, we are heading for good things from right. God. Yes, yes, that's why. Yes. yes. I have found how it is. Yeah, but that again, that is a work of God. That's the work. And we know how God creates faith, so we just need to place ourselves in the way of that, which is to continue to hear His word. And I presume, though, I'm not there yet, but you know, when I'm dead, um, I will see God at that time. You know, it's not, it's not going to be, um, Staying there forever and ever and ever, and then what happens? Actually, it's all coming in together. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Well, right. Wait and see. Well, exactly. I'll send you a note. I'll tell you. Exactly. No, you don't need to. I'll, I'll wait and see as well. But it's exactly what the sequence of things is. It's not revealed because we don't need to know. We just need to know. Uh, we need to know that God. Is in charge, that he is, he, he is in control of all of this, and that he is working for the benefit of his children. And however, whatever that looks like moment to moment or detail in detail, doesn't really matter. Scripture yes. speaks of, as we saw in First Thessalonians, so speaks of death asleep. Yes. So, you know, it doesn't really matter either way. Anything else? Anyone else? Well, if not, we will close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good, you're righteous and just. We thank you that you have called us into your kingdom through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have promised us your lasting everlasting favour and peace. And so we pray that you would give us perseverance and steadfastness in faith, that we continually, in a life of repentance and of renewed faith, might have before our eyes the hope that you have given to us. We look forward to the day of the revelation of Jesus in his glory. And we pray that you would keep us faithful until that day.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all.